my dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day, my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs, the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure. I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union. A savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. iHeartRadio presents Podversations, a weekly discussion with the biggest names and influencers in podcasting. Want to learn the secret psych-up rituals Scrub star Zach Braff and Donald Faison use before every fake doctor's real friends taping? How Vice News parachutes into war zones to rescue journalists from life-threatening situations? Or why Keegan-Michael Key and Blumhouse believe 3D audio is the future of storytelling? Whether you're a newbie trying to break into the podcast game or an exec trying to refine your playbook, Podversations is the easiest way to keep your pulse on the industry. Everybody, thank you for joining us for this week's session of the iHeart Podcast Network Speaker Series. This is something we've been trying to do for the last going on a year now. Uh, about a year ago, when we all moved into a new world order, into quarantine, we at iHeart wanted to keep talking with creators, with content makers, with publishers, with producers about one of our favorite topics, podcasting. And this became a pretty cool new tradition for us that every Thursday around the middle of the day, I have the incredible fortune of being able to sit in conversation with people I really like, respect, that we make content with. We've had incredible creators as part of this speaker series. We've been able to talk with folks like Josh and Chuck, who've been co-hosting Stuff You Should Know for 15 years, to Malcolm Gladwell, to last week we had Jess Hilarious on. This week is a very special session for me because I get to talk to my partner, uh, Charlemagne the God, um, who is uh, obviously the co-host of The Breakfast Club, but more in my world, the co-founder of our huge new launch and joint venture called The Black Effect. Charlemagne, thank you so much for joining us today. I really appreciate it, man. 
Kano, thank you for having me, my brother. What's happening? I'm doing okay. I live in a very sort of uh, humdrum, no big news county in Georgia called DeKalb County, which was not ready for its close-up, but one rarely is. <laughs> DeKalb County did a lot in regards to flipping the state of Georgia blue. They showed up in a real way. I know. It's weird. I grew up in a city called Berkeley, California. I moved to the South about 20 years ago. And to be very candid about it, growing up in a state as blue as California and moving to a state as red as Georgia, I never knew what it meant to have your vote really, really count. And so it's a new layer of pressure that I'm still getting used to, but it is what it is. Listen, the thing I think is really interesting about podcasting is that at least still and so far, no one has started out as a podcaster. This medium is young enough and new enough that we all came from something else. We did something else before this. And I think it brings just this crazy diversity of experience to brainstorm sessions, to partnerships, to new shows that we launch. But maybe go even back before what you were doing before podcasting. Where do you come from to begin with? How did you get into audio? I got into audio because, you know, I am a radio veteran. You know, last year at the Breakfast Club, we got inducted into the National Radio Hall of Fame. And for somebody like me who started off as an intern in Charleston, South Carolina at Z93 Jams in 1998, so I've been doing radio for 23 years at this point. You know, to be a 23-year veteran and get inducted into the Radio Hall of Fame, that's great. But that's essentially how I got into the audio business. I got into the audio business because of radio. You know, I was living in Monk's Corner, South Carolina, where I'm from. I was born in Charleston, South Carolina, raised in Monk's Corner. And, you know, I grew up in a pretty good household. You know, it's one of those things where you don't realize you're poor. You know, is this what you know? So, you know, you grow up in a single wire trailer. Me and my mom and my dad and my older sister at the time until my two younger brothers and younger sister came. And, you know, we go to my grandmother's house who you know, wasn't in a trailer, but it was one of those, like, little small sovereign homes, you know what I mean? So it's just one of those situations where you don't even realize that you're poor and disenfranchised, you know? Because we always had food, you know, always had clothes on my back. And, you know, my mother was an English teacher. My father is what I call an entrepreneur, you know, he did a little bit of everything. So he did, you know, construction was his main thing, but he also, you know, he sold drugs at one point, you know, he also used drugs at one point. So he was a very do as I say, not as I do kind of person. So when I did, you know, start running the streets and, and, you know, getting in trouble, it started with, you know, acting up in school. And then, you know, once I got kicked out of two high schools, Berkeley High School and Scrapford High School, I just started running the streets. I didn't have to do that. Mm. You know, it wasn't, I wasn't one of those kids that, you know, just didn't have any other options. You know, I, I chose to make the poor choices I was making and, and, and hang around the wrong crowd. And, you know, it cost me. It cost me by, you know, me having going to jail a few times for drug offenses and, you know, being with people who were pointing and presenting firearms, you know, so just really being in the wrong place at the wrong time around the wrong people cost me. So my dad used to always say to me, if you don't change, in order to change your life, you got to change your lifestyle. And he would always tell me that if I don't change my lifestyle, I'm going to end up in jail, dead, or broke sitting under the tree. That's what mm -hmm. that was his thing, those three things. So when I actually started going to jail myself and then seeing friends of mine actually go to prison for, you know, four or five years at a time or seeing people around me actually die, get killed. And, you know, actually seeing older cousins I look up to broke under the tree. I was like, yo, my dad is right. I just saw my life at that moment 10 years later if I didn't change. So I made a conscious decision to say, man, I am going to just start 
sowing seeds of positivity in my life. I'm leaving the streets alone. I'm going to get a job. I was never the type of person that, you know, let my mind say, okay, just because I have these felonies doesn't mean I can't get a job. So I ended up working at a warehouse called Industrial Acoustics Company. I worked at a flower garden. I worked at a clothing store in the mall called Demo. I did telemarketing. I was the guy that would call your house and try to sell you 10 CDs for a penny. You know, like most brothers in the hood, I wanted to rap. And the reason I wanted to rap is because the people who I saw on TV that looked like me that was successful were usually in sports and entertainment. And so I was at this recording studio one night and I met a guy by the name of Willie Will. And Willie Will, he was a local radio personality at D93 Jams. And I literally just asked him, this is 1998. I'm like, yo, how did you get on the radio? And he was like, well, I started off as an intern. And I'm like, you know, how do I get an internship? And he was just like, just go down there and fill out the internship papers. And I'm like, is that easy? Like, I don't have to be in school or nothing? Now, mind you, this is 1998, Charleston, South Carolina. The process of entry is way different now. But at the time, I went down there. My now wife drove me down there She, because my license was suspended at the time. And I filled out the internship papers, and I got an internship. And I worked my way from interning to, you know, being in the promotions department, which is essentially just a paid internship. And, you know, I used to run my mouth so much and, and, and be hanging around the station so much that, you know, the music director, Ron White, just asked me one day, he was like, yo, you ever thought about being on the radio? Because the other jocks would let me get on the air. I mean, the reason they would let me get on the air is because, you know, everybody smoked weed. I knew where to get the weed. I would have weed on me. So they just wanted me around. So they would open up the microphones and let me talk. And Ron was like, yo, you should do radio. You should be on the air. And I was like, I did. So I started off Sunday mornings, voice tracking, 10 a.m. to 3 p.m. That didn't last long because South Carolina is the Bible Belt. So you got this, you know, ghetto dude with a lisp you know, calling himself to God on Sunday mornings and yelling and screaming at people, you know. I didn't know how to have a conversational tone yet, so I was just fresh off the block. And so they moved me to Saturday night, 7 p.m. to 12 a.m., where all that yelling and screaming worked because, you know, I was getting the city hype. And, you know, one of the best things that ever happened to me was I did not know how to do radio. I didn't go to college for this. I didn't have any formal training. So literally, I was just talking like we would talk in the hood. And so the show got really popular really fast in Charleston, South Carolina. And that's how I got into the audio business. There's a lot there, man. <laughs> My favorite bit of that may be that the reason you got kicked off of Sunday mornings was because your name was Charlemagne the God in the Bible Belt. But we'll we'll leave it. I, I, <laughs> you still had something special, though, and maybe instinctive, which was the art of conversation, the art of the human voice. You know, I'm first generation Irish. My mom and dad are from Ireland. I grew up in a house where the art of the conversation was taken very seriously. The human voice was a skill, if you will. What about you? Do you track that back to your very beginnings of like, yeah, we told a lot of stories. We had a lot of conversations. Anything like that you can track it back to? Man, I, you know, that's, that's interesting because I never thought about that. But yeah, because, you know, when I was young, you know, I'm 42. So, you know, there was no social media. You know what I mean? Like we was sitting around on the porch talking. That's how I came up. I came up listening to my father telling stories and my uncles telling stories and my grandma telling stories. Like, that's literally what we do. That was one of my favorite pastimes. One of my favorite pastimes was when everybody was sitting around under the tree. I'm the little kid eavesdropping on all these things I shouldn't be hearing. What kind of stories would they tell that you shouldn't be hearing? Oh, a bunch of stuff that'll get us canceled now. Come on. You talking, talking, <laughs> talking about old, you know, sovereign black men. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah <laughs> around yeah. drinking alcohol and, you know, doing whatever else they was doing that I didn't know what they were doing at the time. It's like, yeah, yeah I was taught wrong about a lot of things. You know yeah. what I mean? So, yeah, it, it definitely was storytelling. You would hear definitely family stories from, like, my grandmother and, you know, 
my mother, they'd be telling us stuff about how things used to be. My grandma's favorite line was, she's never seen the world the way it is now, which is so crazy because she passed away in 2006. So I just wonder what she would make of things now. I, I think about that often. But yeah, that definite art of storytelling, absolutely, I would have to attribute to my Southern upbringing because that's all we did was sit around and, and have conversation, which is still one of my favorite things to do now. Like, it's like, yo, put your phone down, you know, turn the TV off, let's go have dinner and, you know, drink some alcohol and talk. That's what I like to do with my, my friends and family. I mean, I see it today with my own kids. I have four kids. They are very into screens, but I still feel like I never engage with them as much or, or and I, I maybe I'm imposing this on them. I never feel like they're quite as fulfilled as when we just have a really good conversation, the sound of the human voice. And I've heard this across a lot of these speaker sessions. Malcolm Gladwell put it this way a few months ago. He was like, you know, I don't know that I'll ever write a book again. It's just there's something about the sound of the human voice in an audiobook that conveys information in a way through stories that's hard to replicate it. Malcolm, that might be a little bit of cap coming from Malcolm. Cap means a slight fabrication <laughs> because Malcolm sold like a million copies. I know. Talking to strangers audio. <laughs> I wouldn't ever write a book again if I sold <laughs> me audio-wise. Like, stop, Malcolm. Knock it off. That's right. fair. I only know what cap means because of those same children I referenced a few minutes ago. But you're right. It's e it may be easier for him to say that. But listen, I think what maybe less people know, more now than ever, what maybe less people know is that you are also a veteran in podcasting. This medium has been around maybe officially for about 15 years. The iHeartRadio podcast team has been making shows for a long time, but so have you. You jumped into this medium seven, eight years ago with a show called Brilliant Idiots. You made several episodes of another show called Sibling Rivalry. Point is, you were in this much earlier than a lot of your peers in radio, and you didn't just dabble in it. You didn't say, oh, I'll try a couple podcasts and then go away for several years. You stuck with a podcast and grew it. Lots of questions like why? Why put why take on that extra work? What was it about podcasting that attracted your attention as like this might be a thing? Well, you know, I, I have to give my man Chris Moreau a lot of credit for that. Chris Moreau was our producer for the Breakfast Club weekend syndicated show. So, you know, he was doing that, but he also was an owner of a podcast network called the Loudspeaker Network. You know, just over the you know, course of some months and you know, some years. He would always tell me, like, yo, you need to do a podcast. You need to do a podcast. And I, I'm not going to lie. My ego was like, why? I do radio. I do morning radio in New York every day, Monday through Friday. Why the hell would I do a podcast? Podcast is for people who can't get on the radio. Like, that's what my mind was saying to me. And then um, I remember going to do the Combat Jack show, God Bless the Dead, my man Reggie Osei. I went to do the show. That was a loudspeaker network show. And I did it, you know, and, you know, I got a reaction from it, right? So I was just like, okay, maybe there is something to this podcast thing. And then I even think about people like to read, you know, Kip Fury and Crystal, they was on Loudspeaker and they were making a lot of impact. And so me and my guy, Andrew Schultz, who's a comedian, you know, we were working at MTV2 at the time. And, you know, me and him have such great conversations, right? And I was just like, man, if I do it, I'm going to have Andrew as my partner. And, and plus I wanted a way to kind of like help him elevate his voice. And so we just started doing it. Like, you know, seven years ago, I think it was 2013. Well, eight years ago now, like 2013. And the first episode, I put it out and I, I had my friend on there, Jasmine Waters, God bless the dead. She transitioned last year as well. When we put it out, it had like 50,000, 60,000 listens in a week. Yeah. And for me, I was like, man, that's crazy. Cause you know, when you get on the radio, these radio stations already have a built-in audience. All you gotta do is maintain that and, and grow it, right? With podcasts, I don't know if people want to listen to me just because they care about what I say. People might just care about what I say because on the radio. With this, 
when I put that out and it was 60,000 people that listened to it in a week, I was like, people actually care what I got to say. And, you know, and then we, we just kept doing them. And, you know, next thing you know, we're doing live shows and we're selling merchandise. And, you know, seven years later, you were a seven-figure-a-year business. And you're like, oh. Yeah. Like, every time I get a check from Brilliant Idiots, it's literally like, I'm just looking at it like, yo, people pay us for this? Like, <laughs> like, 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 we get paid for this? Like, it's actually kind of mind-blowing. But yeah, I mean, I, listen, I love talking. I love communicating with people. Thankfully, I push my ego to the side. And, you know, I'm also a person that's never willing to try new things because the worst that can happen is it, is it doesn't work. So being that Chris was hounding me about it so bad, I was just like, yo, why not try it? And I mean, I'm glad that I listened to him. My dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure, I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. AI might be the most important new computer technology ever. It's storming every industry, and literally billions of dollars are being invested. So buckle up. The problem is that AI needs a lot of speed and processing power. So how do you compete without costs spiraling out of control? It's time to upgrade to the next generation of the cloud. Oracle Cloud Infrastructure, or OCI. OCI is a single platform for your infrastructure, database, application development, and AI needs. OCI has four to eight times the bandwidth of other clouds, offers one consistent price instead of variable regional pricing, and of course, nobody does data better than Oracle. So now you can train your AI models at twice the speed and less than half the cost of other clouds. If you want to do more and spend less like Uber, 8x8, and Databricks Mosaic, take a free test drive of OCI at oracle.com strategic. That's oracle.com slash strategic, oracle.com slash strategic. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. But you saw this over the last seven, eight years. You, you had a front row seat as this medium exploded. It went from a relatively niche emerging medium to now you have 100, 110 million Americans a month listening to a podcast. It's right at that level where it's way past emerging medium now. But it's also fair to say that across that 10, 15 years of growth, you saw something broken with the medium too. Mm -hmm. And you reached out to iHeartRadio 
about a year ago and you had this idea, big idea. I've said this to you before, but it, it feels almost like the idea arrived fully formed, like you had been thinking about it for a while as a way to try to fix, start to fix, what is a diversity issue in podcasting. It doesn't feel like a medium that was welcoming or supportive of diverse creators, of black creators specifically in your case. Where did this come from? Why was this so urgent for you all of a sudden to say, okay, we got to jump in and try to start to fix this? Well, it was my time at the Loudspeaker Network. Loudspeaker wasn't, you know, it was partially black owned because, you know, Combat Jack and was, was black, Reggie Osei, and, you know, Chris was an owner as well. They, to me, at the time, had the most diverse programming. You know, you had the Reed, which is hosted by Kid Fury and Crystal. You know, both of them are, you know, members of the LGBT community, you know, black man, you know, black woman. And then, you know, the Brilliant Idiots came along and then your uh, Combat Jack was doing, like, you know, the hip-hop. He was having, like, these really in-depth hip-hop conversations. And I was paying attention to that. And then I started looking at all of these other networks popping up like you know you had you know bill simmons with the ringer and you know you had you know gimlet and then i started to see these companies trying to come in and get these podcasts to come behind a paywall and that's when i really started paying attention when they started knocking on our door at loudspeaker and you know brilliant idiots in particular and you know wanting to pay us you know to be behind a paywall right and i'm looking i mean the numbers they were offering it was seven figures but i mean we were making more than that in advertising, so it wasn't, you know, no reason to really jump. Plus, I started thinking to myself, podcast shouldn't be behind a paywall. It felt very satellite radio-ish. No disrespect to satellite radio, but, you know, there's a difference between terrestrial and satellite. And the fact you got to pay for satellite still makes terrestrial a lot more attractive. So I wasn't, like, keen to get behind a paywall. So I just started thinking, like, man, number one, you got to have a network, and I want to have a network full of diverse Black voices, right? A network that's really, you know, for us, bias but number two i don't want that network behind a paywall yeah that's just the vision i had so over the years i was just sitting back watching observing watching what different players were doing in the space i knew what my contract was i knew i had a five-year deal i knew you know what i mean so it was just a matter of 2020 came and it was time to time. negotiate this is part of the negotiations this is what i want to do and you know i heart they believe in me, you know, not only as a talent, but they believe in me as a creative. They believe in me as an executive and they empowered me in that way. What was really startling to me was, first of all, not just us trying to start to fix a diversity problem in podcasting, but also the diversity of the content that you greenlit and onboarded. So it's not just I think a lot of people, for starters, might think, oh, OK, a black creators podcast network. That's going to be mostly about social justice issues, right? Mm -hmm. And that is totally wrong. Actually, you started to green light shows that were Michelle Williams in mental health, Jess Hilarious in comedy, Dwight Howard in sports, business and finance, travel. And I kept hearing you and the president of the network, Dolly Bishop, use these words. I just want to create a space that lets black creators be unapologetically black, regardless of the genre they want to work in. Mm -hmm. I assume that was a big part of this for you from the get-go? Yeah, because, you know, we always say Black people are not monolithic, you know? But what does that mean, you know? Like, we, we know what it means, but we got to show that, you yeah. know? And, and the way that we show that is by showing this diversity of thought from these Black, you know, thought leaders. And I have to give my mom a lot of credit because my mom was an English teacher. And my mom, since the beginning, since I can remember, I mean, a kid, kindergarten, first grade, she would always tell me, read things that don't pertain to me. 
Mm. So I was the guy that would go in the library, especially because of the book it program, is you know, you read four free books, you get a pizza. So I was the guy that would go in there and I read every Judy Bloom book. Because I'm look, that don't pertain to me. This is about little white girls, little white kids. You know what I mean? So I would read every Judy Bloom book, every Beverly Clearly book, you know. Um, then I started reading about UFOs and Sasquatch. And then when I got older and got into hip hop, I'm reading The Source and Double XL. And my dad's giving me like the autobiography of Malcolm X and, you know, Message to the Black Man by the Honorable Elijah Muhammad. And then I start getting into self help books like The Secret by Rhonda Byrne and 48 Laws of Power by Robert Greene and, you know, Seed of the Soul by Gary Zukov. So I'm, I'm taking in all of this different information and you know that's how i've always been and i have to give my mom credit for that because of her i have curiosity in so many different things like and i like to be challenged i don't like to you know feel comfortable with something so that was a no-brainer like yeah I'm, I'm i'm into mental health and mindfulness i just launched my foundation today the mental wealth alliance you know well i just announced that i already launched it but i just announced it today. I'm into social justice, you know. I'm I'm into sports. I'm into comedy. Like these are things that are just natural extensions of me and what I do. So of course I want the best in the field who have something to say about those things on the black effect. One thing that really surprised me when we jumped into this about six months ago in earnest, and we actually started to go out, talk to people, other creators, about jumping in on the black effect being a part of it whether it's a pre-existing show like all the smoke or a new creator to podcasting like jess hilarious was your credibility with these other creators and I, I don't mean to put you on the spot it's kind of a weird question but where do you think that comes from i swear Charlemagne, every conversation i would have would usually at some point i would get back the words well i trust Charlemagne implicitly i'd do anything for the guy so this sounds great i'm in to the point where it started to startle me. How did you maintain that? Well, I think, you know, in, in the hood, we say my face called clean, you know? And um, honestly, that just comes from treating people right, man, treating people with respect. Like, you know, my grandmother beat it in my head when I was young, manners will take you where money won't. And, you know, I try to treat people the way that I would want to be treated, you know what I mean? Regardless of, you know, what performative things you may have seen me do early on in my radio career, like when the mics are off, it's like, it's love, it's respect. You know, I give people the energy that I would want to give back. You know, I think that I attempt to pour into people, you know, the way I would want people to pour into me, because I have been poured into. Like, there were people that, you know, gave me opportunities and put me in positions when I was, you know, coming up, and, and I didn't even understand why I was in these rooms. To be totally honest, I had no idea. So it's like I meet these different people in my journey, and I just... I show them love. You know, I've had a platform, The Breakfast Club, for the past decade, you know, and and... I don't have a scorecard of why certain people should be on and why they shouldn't. If I think you're interested, if I find you interesting, if I think you got something funny to say, smart to say, yo, let's bring them on the platform. And, you know, I've done that with every platform that I've had, whether it's The Breakfast Club, The Brilliant Idiots, you know, my talk shows on MTV2, like Uncommon Sense, whatever it was, I've always showed people the same love that I want to I wanna get back in return. And, you know, I guess it's a testament to that. Because it's not, you know, I'm not one of those people that do things and say, all right, in the future, I'm going to come to you and I'm going to ask for something. It's just like, no, I do things because I genuinely want want to yeah. do them. You know what I mean? I do things and not, I don't expect anything back in right. return. And I, I think the love is, is just being reciprocated. And that means a lot to me, man. I'm, I'm going to be honest with you. Like, you know, all you have is your reputation at the end of the day. People will forget what you said. They'll forget what you what you did, but they'll never forget how you made them feel. 
Right. We've talked about this a couple times, but I think it's it's worth telling because it's how I understand the words, the black effect. I, again, back to the top of this, I live in, in DeKalb County, Georgia. I have a 15-year-old son. He's a white kid who lives in the suburbs of Atlanta. His favorite podcast is The Breakfast Club, right? He understands his whole world through this show. It's uh, To the extent that he understands politics, he understands it through The Breakfast Club. It's how he understands culture. It's how he makes fashion choices sometimes. That was, for me, my first sort of true understanding of what the black effect means, this outsized effect of black creators well beyond just the black community, actually driving culture, driving it hard, driving it all the time. What do the words the black effect mean to you? Again, thank you, first of all, because there was no brainstorming about what this network would be called. You'd be like, no, 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 guys, I got it. It's called the black effect. What do those words mean to you? It means that we control the cool. It means that when you put, you know, blackness into anything, there is an immediate cultural impact. There is an immediate cultural shift. Like, you know, I love this talk about, you know, OG Jim Clyburn in South Carolina and how Joe Biden's campaign was struggling. You got an OG like Jim Clyburn who got on that stage and was like, nah, this is the guy. And black people trusted Jim Clyburn. So black, all the black people in the South, they went out and voted for him, you know? Senator Kamala Harris, you know, regardless of how you feel about her, you can't act like having that black woman, that woman of color on the ticket didn't shift things, it didn't impact things in, in a major way. And, and if you look across the board, man, look at the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. You know, Tom Brady, probably top three greatest white men to ever live, but let's not act like that coaching staff wasn't the most diverse coaching staff in the NFL. The offensive coordinator, Byron Leftwich, is black. Defensive coordinator, Todd Bowles, is black. Like, and, and that's a thing now. So when I see people talking about the Tampa Bay Buccaneers and they're talking about that coaching staff, how they have four black coaches, it's like, man, that should make people understand. Put some black on it. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? When you when you look at the Black Effect Podcast Network and you look at the fact that Dolly Bishop is a black woman and she's the president and this is something that's a branch out of a black man and all of these black creators and the impact we're having in this space right now, it's just like, stop scratching your head. It's not rocket science. You know what I mean? Like we, we have these conversations about diversity mattering, but do you really understand how much it matters? Do you really understand the effect that blackness has on literally everything we control the cool so invest in blackness so we've launched this thing called the black effect it's the single biggest black podcast network in the world right now we launched it about three four months ago with over 20 million downloads a month that we're able to fold under this into a media plan we've launched 20 shows so far another 20 to go across the rest of this year i've never seen anything move this fast or honestly be i think this important to a medium that's this hot right now. For me, and we can wrap on this question, but like one of the coolest parts of the whole process for me was the last mile when you and I went out and talked to potential sponsors for this thing. Who wants to jump in with us and support this? The reason I say that is because there were more predictable parts of those media plans. We'll do great host red ads, we'll do some branded content for you, we'll drop it into all these feeds. But then it started to get really interesting. Brands started to ask you to use the creators inside the Black Effect to basically create like an advisory board to come help them with their own corporate culture, their own messaging, their own marketing plans as like a sounding board for what's good, what's bad, help us. 
it was something I'd never seen before on a media plan, a marketing plan. It was true partnership, not just sponsorship. Maybe talk about how that made you feel and why you were open to that, because you really were. It was pretty awesome. Well, I was open to it simply because I hate when people try to explain things from their perspective and they don't know what the hell they're talking about. As a radio personality, when I'm in a meeting and a consultant says, so what do 20-year-olds think about this? And I look around and there's nothing but 40-year-olds in there. I'm like, well, go get some 20-year-olds. I hate when white people try to white-explain things for black people. I hate when men try to men-explain things for women. I hate when straight people try to straight-explain things for the LGBTQ community. It's like, no, let's go get those individuals. And, you know, you have these corporations that have all these cultural blind spots and they make a lot of mistakes sometimes because they don't have anybody that's not white or male, you know, sitting at that table. You know, yeah. so if you if, if we have access to, you know, leaders like Tamika Mallory, if we have access to, you know, Senator Nina Turner, Teslin Figaro, Ebony K. Williams, like all of these people that are, you know, on the front lines in their respective fields, it's just like, yo, why not bring them in? So those cultural blind spots that you have, they can help you see. It's just like, yo, let's utilize these individuals' full skill sets. You know, they're not just our partners in the podcast space where they're talking and teaching on these podcasts. We can bring them into these boardrooms and sit them down at the table and let them teach these corporations because, man, the only way we're going to really continue to evolve as a society is if we really have real conversations, if we talk to each other. And we cannot be afraid to ask questions. Like, there's no such thing as a dumb question. I don't care what you think the question is. Like, the question might be so stupid to you, but I would rather you ask it, right? I would rather you ask me about something that you, you're feeling about, you know, Black people or Black culture. I would rather you ask me than assume, because when you assume, you're probably going to make an ass out of yourself. Listen, I think it's been the privilege of my career to be able to work on The Black Effect, and I really do deeply uh, thank you for this, for taking the time today, but also just for being iHeartRadio's partner and launching this new podcast network. It means a lot to us, and we are off to a heck of a start. So thank you, Charlemagne. Thank you, Connell. And I mean, you know, this partnerships like this is what's going to help take podcasting to the next level. You know what I mean? Because I honestly think that was the other thing that was missing in the podcast world. You know, the podcast world is becoming the medium that it is because of corporations like iHeart really investing into the podcast culture. So, so thank you. Podversations is a production of iHeartRadio. You can find more from the biggest names in podcasting on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. Hey guys, back at the playground again, huh? Yep. You know what this playground could use? A wine country. Heck yeah, and some waves. So we could go surfing. Oh, <laughs> ah, love that. A redwood forest would be cool. I'm in. Ah, ski slopes. Let's do it. Um, tenor girl go shopping. Yeah, baby. Wait. 
Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. Are you spending more time in your basement now that it's your rec room, office, kids' playroom, or home gym? Well, you need to ventilate those spaces to remove stagnant, musty air. For over 20 years, the Easy Breathe ventilation system exchanges dirty, damp air for cleaner, drier, healthier air. Take charge of your indoor air with your own Easy Breathe ventilation system. You can get it installed, or DIY kits are available. Just call 866-822-7328 or visit TakeChargeOfYourAir.com and receive 20% off today.